You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. There's a lot going on, as Rachel Maddow literally says. Every night when she opens her show, because literally there is never not a lot going on right now. But I'm going to focus on the particular overlap between the Robert Mueller probe, former FBI head James Comey's explosive new book, A Higher Loyalty, and my specific area of expertise, which is, of course, all the kinky motherfuckers out there. The question I'm going to focus on with laser-like precision is POTUS, is the president of the United States, is 45, is Donald J. Trump into piss? Quote, I honestly never thought these words would come out of my mouth, but I don't know whether the current president of the United States was with prostitutes peeing on each other in Moscow in 2013, Comey told George Stephanopoulos in an interview that aired on ABC on Sunday night. It was the same interview in which Comey called Trump morally unfit to serve as president of the United States, not because of the piss thing, but because of the lying liar liar thing. And he also called Trump a stain on all around him. Side note, people who worked in the Trump White House are finding it impossible to get jobs after they leave. Considering the number of people who leave, get fired, or are indicted, that is a lot of jobless former Trump White House staffers. So, hey, let's all keep those unemployed motherfuckers in our thoughts and prayers, shall we? Maybe light a little candle? Anyway, back to the piss tape. The president told James Comey in a private meeting that it could not have happened. He would never be in the same room with pissing Russian sex workers. Non-pissing Russian sex workers, on the other hand, quoting here from the Washington Post's write-up of the more salacious details in A Higher Loyalty, Comey writes that Trump asked him to have the FBI investigate the allegations to prove they were not true and offered varying explanations to convince him why. I'm a germaphobe, Trump told him in a follow-up call on January 11, 2017, according to Comey's account. There's no way I would let people pee on each other around me. No way. Later, the president asked what could be done to lift the cloud of the P-tape because it was so painful for First Lady Melania Trump. Jumping ahead, a week later, Trump called Comey again, and Comey describes Trump as, quote, fixated on the prostitutes allegation. The president-elect argued that it could not be true because he had not stayed overnight in Moscow, but had only used the hotel room to change his clothes. And after Trump explained that he would never allow people to urinate near him, Comey recalls laughing. I decided not to tell him that the activity alleged did not seem to require either an overnight stay or even being in proximity to the participants, Comey writes. In fact, though I didn't know for sure, I imagined the presidential suite of the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow was large enough for a germaphobe to be at a safe distance from the activity. Okay, so Trump may or may not have been in close proximity, but an appeal to germaphobia does not get one off the piss-freak hook. For anyone who knows anything about kink, it has the opposite effect. Your average germaphobe is viewed as somewhat likelier to be into filthy, gross, wet, messy, and yes, germy things than your average non-germaphobe. I mean, think about it. While no one chooses their kinks, there is nothing kink-shamey about the points that I am making here, and kinks can sometimes seem quite randomly assigned Most people's kinks do involve eroticized transgressions, not just against societal norms and standards, but against the self, 
eroticized violations of our own self-image, our own self-perception, and our self-projection. Think of all those strong feminist women out there who take no crap out of the bedroom, but inside the bedroom want to have their hair pulled consensually, their asses slapped consensually, and to be called sluts consensually. Think of all those out and proud gay men out there who speak up whenever anyone says anything even remotely homophobic, but who love being called faggot when they're getting fucked. Think of all those powerful and wealthy straight white men who patronize professional dominatrixes because nothing gets them off like crawling, begging, and giving up that power. And think of all those white straight men into racialized cuckolding who harbor racist sentiments, but nothing gets them off quite like watching black men have sex with their wives. Of course, not every germaphobe is into piss and or other forms of wet and or messy play, just as not every feminist woman wants to have her hair pulled and her ass slapped, and not every out and proud gay man gets off on being called a faggot when there's a dick in his ass, and not every wealthy and powerful straight white man gets off on being made to crawl and beg by a crop-wielding, strap-on-wearing dominatrix, and not every racist white man gets off on racialized, cuckolding interracial sex. But enough in each category do, or does, or do. Anyway, enough in each category do for all of these things, for these kinks, to qualify as cliches. We can't speak with certainty about their statistical significance because there aren't a lot of grants out there for researchers who study kinks. But the anecdotal evidence is pretty overwhelming. So an appeal to germophobia, or feminism, or pride, or power, or racism That by itself isn't proof that someone isn't turned on by piss, ravishment, homophobic dirty talk, submission, or racialized cuckolding, respectively. If anything, it increases the odds for the opposite to be the case. And a person, a person who's ashamed of their kinks or in a panic to cover them up, my experience, that person is highly likely to point to the very thing that makes their kink so arousing in the first place. Instead of, that's not something that turns me on, so that is not something I would do, They say, I couldn't be into that because I'm a germaphobe, feminist, proud gay man, powerful dude, racist piece of shit. And people do this because the kinkster subconsciously longs to be exposed, another violation of the self. And it's not just the kinkster who longs for this kind of exposure. Why? Ask yourself why people are so bad at keeping their sexual secrets. Maybe it's because these aren't secrets that deep down we really want to keep. Maybe deep down, actually deep down, we all long to be known for who and what we are. But only a few of us are lucky enough to have a special prosecutor making that happen. So yeah, the P-tape is real, as Donald J. Trump himself keeps telling us. Finally, President of the United States, who is into piss, in my professional opinion, is extremely pissed at James Comey and tweeted this along with 10,000 other tweets over the weekend. James Comey is a proven leaker and liar. He leaked classified information for which he should be prosecuted. That Trump can't attack Comey without accusing Comey of being a proven leaker who took leaks to the media and continues to leak leaks all over the place. That's pretty revealing all by itself. Okay, Denver, I am coming to you. Denver, Colorado on May 10th, Savage Love Live at the Oriental Theater. For tickets, go to savagelovecast.com slash events. And coming up on today's show on the micro Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. 
And on the Magnum version of the show, twice as long, no ads, subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Cunning Minx, host of the Poly Weekly podcast, joins us to help me tackle some particularly tricky poly-oriented relationship questions. Also on today's show, cock rings, definitively explained. All that coming up. Hi, Dan. I'm calling from the East Coast, and um, I'm married. I've been married for about eight years, and the last four years of that, I've been in an open relationship, which has been really great. But so the situation now is that I've been hooking up with this guy who's like a friend of ours, and he just never makes me come. So he did once when I took his hand and showed him how to do it. Um, but after that, he hasn't. So why do I continue to sleep with him is that it's opened up this crazy dynamic with me and my husband where, like, I come home, I, I go have, like, fine but not orgasmic sex with that guy. Then I come home and my husband's like, you know, I'm the only one who can make you come. And it's really hot. And then we, like, have mind-blowing sex. But I guess the question in my mind is if... I should confront this guy more about why he doesn't do it. I haven't confronted him because I've been all caught up in this dynamic with my husband, which is really, like, exciting for us. But then I'm like, should I say something to him? Do I have an ethical obligation to say something to him? He's Is he just being an asshole? Does it matter? If he were my primary partner, I wouldn't accept that kind of behavior and I would confront it. But I've been kind of just letting it slide. But I wonder if I'm, like, encouraging bad behavior, I guess. So what you're doing works for you. This guy that you hook up with is the underwhelming appetizer and then you head home to the husband and you have a kick-ass entree. It's almost like the dude is foreplay and the sex with your husband you have after you hook up with this dude is the main event. And that setup works for you. It actually sounds like it kind of turns you on and it certainly rebounds to the benefit – redounds, rebounds? I can never remember which it is. Redound rebounds to the benefit of your husband. There's definitely something in it for him too. But do you have an ethical moral obligation to slap this guy upside the head and tell him that he ain't doing it for you and he ain't making any effort to do it for you despite you walking him through what it is you need in order to come? And of course, if that dude made that effort and you came with him, there's nothing to prevent you from heading home and coming again with the husband because you have that superpower. All women have that superpower. And some men have that superpower too. It's a real dilemma because things as they are now kind of work for you and kind of work for him. But as with any man who doesn't make an effort to make a woman come or assumes that a woman is coming or the woman is faking the orgasms and leading him to believe that his moves are magic and his dick is magic and will make a woman come, you're setting up women who are going to come into his life later for inattentiveness at the very least, and boorish asshole selfishness at worst. And you have to think of the women down the line when you're with some dude who doesn't give a shit about whether you come or not. So I would say something to him. You don't have to say, I want this to change. You can say to him, you know what? This is working. We fuck around and you take your pleasure in me and then I go home and I have a shattering orgasm with my husband. So whatever, dude. I showed you what it takes to make me come. You're obviously not interested in making the effort. But you know, there are going to be women in your life in future who don't have husbands that they're going to go to after they see you who care about whether they come or not. And I worry about them. 
So I just want to make the point. I just want to stick a pin in this and let you know we can keep doing as we're doing and you can keep not doing as you're not doing for me. But for the women coming after me, yeah, you're not going to be able to keep one for your own if this is your M.O. Any self-respecting woman is going to get up and go. I only drop by occasionally because I enjoy this for my own reasons. And in the context of my relationship with my husband, it works for us. This is not going to work with 99.99% of the women out there in the world that you encounter. And you're lucky that it works for me thanks to my husband. And that has earned you continued access to my pussy. With any other woman that you treated like this, yeah, I bet her legs are going to slam shut. And they should. And now, drop your pants and let's not do this thing. Let's start this thing so that I can go home and my husband can finish it. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Youth. My girlfriend and I have a question. Our friend who just got laid after 15 months of downtime had a little mistaken encounter with a condom and a cock ring. We're just wondering what the deal is with cock rings and do they make your dick bigger or is it like a longevity thing or a sensitivity thing? Just uh, a little curious. God bless you for this question. 20 plus years ago when I started writing Savage Love, my sex advice column, every once in a while I get a question like this. What's a cock ring? How does a cock ring work? Or what's a butt plug? How does a butt plug work? And I loved questions like that because they're so easy to answer. Unlike the questions you get now, which are all situational ethics. They did this. I did that. Who's right? Who's wrong? Please, Dan, cut this baby in half, won't you? But you don't get questions about cock rings or butt plugs anymore and what they are and how to use them when you write a sex advice column or host a sex advice podcast because cock rings and butt plugs literally have their own wiki pages that explain everything in far greater detail than I could ever explain it in a column or really on the podcast unless I dedicated six or seven hours to cock rings. Cock rings are pretty simple. Some people just wear them because they're pretty. It's a nice visual adornment. It draws focus and attention, but they have a functional purpose. And this is why most people will wear them. When you get an erection, the blood that flows into your penis flows into the erectile chambers deep inside. And as those expand, they constrict the veins or arteries, I can't remember which it is, that take blood away from the penis, which are closer to the surface. And that's why you get an erection. That's why your dick gets hard because blood is getting in faster than it can get out. And not only that, the arteries or veins that carry the blood out are a little pinched. They're not able to carry the blood out quite as quickly uh, as they normally do when you're not hard. And what a cock ring does is it adds another level of constriction and makes it a little harder for the blood to exit your penis. This is why it's crucially important when you use a cock ring that you use one that is sized appropriately. You don't want to use one that's too small. You don't want to make it impossible for blood to get out of your penis because then you will be at the hospital three hours later having that cock ring sawn off by a professional in a race against the clock, in a race against gangrene or other forms of damage. So Use an appropriately sized cock ring. And it needs to be snug but not tight when you have an erection. If it's snug but not tight when you're soft and then you get hard, it's probably going to be way too tight, particularly if you are a grower, not a shower. Some people use cock rings because they have ED and it adds an extra little boost along with perhaps Viagra or Cialis. Again, some people use them just because they're pretty. Some people use them who 
don't have any trouble getting an erection, but they sometimes begin to flag a little bit. They begin to go a little bit soft and they want the added boost, the added restriction that carries them over those perhaps distracted moments where they might totally deflate in the absence of a cock ring. Maybe they only partially deflate with the help of a cock ring and then their dick comes roaring back like dicks do. Oh, thank you for this question. It was such a treat to get to talk for a few minutes about cock rings and not to have to take one side or the other in a dispute between a couple or a thruple or a quadruple or the whole world. Thanks like you. Hi, Dan. 25-year-old gay married male here. A month ago, my husband told me he wanted space after he repeatedly refused to have sex with me, so we got separated. In therapy, he said he hasn't been emotionally connected for a year, but this was after he cheated on me. We were in an open relationship, and the only rules were to play safe, and no emotional connections were allowed. Well, he fell in love with someone else. I shut it down, and now I guess it's the aftermath. He said we would still talk and leave the door open for our relationship while we separated, but he's just confused on what he wants. And not too long ago, he ghosted me for several days, and it's been causing lots of anxiety. Where do I go from here? I still love him, but I'm... Not sure he wants to be with me, and a lot of times I feel like I have more love for him than he does for me. Some of my friends think he's depressed, and I think he could be too, but I'm not sure. If you were me, what steps would you take next? If I were you, if I were in this situation, the next step that I would take would be, and forgive me for this, consulting a divorce attorney. You say that your husband is confused about what he wants or he tells you that he's confused about what he wants. Often when people say they're confused about what they want, what they're saying is they're afraid to say out loud what it is they want. So I would encourage you, instead of waiting for him to say what it is that he wants, to look at his actions. And his actions are kind of telling you loud and clear that he wants out, doesn't want to have sex with you. He got involved with someone else and fell in love with that person until you shut it down. Uh, he ghosts on you and disappears. And, and yet – He's going to counseling with you probably so that when things do end, he can say that he did everything that he could, everything that was asked of him to save the marriage that in the end couldn't be saved because he doesn't want to be in this marriage. He's not telling you that. He's not using his words to tell you that, but his actions really do seem to be telling you that. And I think you should listen to his actions and stop waiting around for his words to catch up. So I would, if I were you, consult a divorce attorney. I would, if I were you, bring that up that you have consulted a divorce attorney in your next joint counseling session and hash it out. Call the question. Call his bluff. And, and, and I'm sorry, you are in love with this person. You sounds like you're in love with a person who is not in love with you or is not in love with being married. Something isn't working for him that makes the marriage and you not work for him. And he isn't telling, he isn't saying, and that's incredibly frustrating to live with that absence that to live with not knowing what you have a right to know. And what he really has a moral obligation to tell you, but it doesn't sound like he has the moral courage to tell you. He probably is telling himself that this is kinder, drawing it out in this way, letting you live in what is probably false hope is the nice 
kind, affectionate, loving thing for him to do when it's never nice, it's never kind, it's never loving, it's never affectionate to pull a Band-Aid off so slowly that someone is in pain 24 fucking hours a day. So call his bluff. Talk to a divorce attorney. Don't file for divorce. Talk to a divorce attorney. Talk to him about the fact that you've spoken to someone just about your options going forward because you can't live forever with things as they are now and you don't intend to live forever as things are now. And things have got to get better or you've got to get out. And that's what I would do. Things get better or I'm getting out. That's what I would tell my estranged husband if I were in your shoes. I'm so sorry. And just as a general note, and I say this all the time, and I don't want to salt your wounds, caller, but I say this all the time, 25 is too young. 25 is too young to be married. It is. It's not too young to be engaged. Have a nice, long, epic engagement. But 25 is too young. 25 is too young. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old gay cisgender male living in the East Coast. I have been in a relationship with this guy for almost a year now, and I'm starting to have doubts. Not about him. He truly has all of the qualities I'm looking for. Our sex life is amazing. Our emotional and physical connection feels so right. He's spontaneous. He makes me laugh. He's motivated. And I feel like I have the same qualities that he's also looking for in a partner. The doubts come from the fact that he came pretty immediately after I ended a four-year relationship. Feelings of not completely being ready or having the time to grieve my last relationship or having the time to find myself as an individual again and be single, quote-unquote, uh, for a bit of time. And fears of not being able to say no to temptation, which was also a problem in my last relationship. We were always going to be attracted to other men, and I get that. And we are still so young, and I can't seem to quiet the thoughts of being too young to really know what I want or be able to commit for long-term or even life. Would love to hear your opinion on this. I really think this new guy might be it, and I don't want to lose him. I've communicated these concerns to him, and we have tried talking by talking about it, working through it, and he has been so patient with me. We've tried taking breaks, but ultimately we find ourselves being drawn right back to each other. We can't stand the thought of each other being with other people, and ultimately we don't want to take the time and then risk the other one finding someone else. This relationship feels too incredible to just let go. He's really fed up and frustrated with this whole thing, and I feel equally as frustrated and terrible that I'm not giving him what I want and should be giving him. He is fully in it with me and wants to move forward together, which my overwhelming thoughts have gotten in the way of. He needs to trust that these doubts are going away, and I want to trust that I'm fully in it with him. How can I get myself there so that we both feel comfortable moving forward and like we are working towards making a future together without having any doubts? Dude, you are always going to have doubts. If you can't move forward, if you can't commit until you've eradicated all doubt, then you'll never move forward and you'll never commit. Listen to your sound time. Get out follies. Get out company. Uh, I'm not going to start singing songs, but there's a lot of really great life lessons and lessons about how sometimes there is this ambiguous feeling when you're in a committed long-term relationship. The road you didn't take, the other people that you could have been with, that does weigh on you, the experiences you could have had. And then you need to shift your focus to who you are with and the experiences you are having with that person. Then you need to shift your focus to the person you are with and the experiences that you are having with that person. And it won't eradicate doubt, but it will act as a balm. It will make you feel better in the final equation, the who and the what you're with and what you're experiencing with this person. Uh, it can never measure up in your 
fantasies about, about all the pe- other people you could have been with and the other things that you could have done. But you have to remind yourself of those moments that those are fantasies. And if things are great with this guy and the sex is amazing and there's a strong emotional connection, you don't toss that aside for arbitrary, silly rules, the rules reasons like we met on the rebound. So fucking what? I met Terry on the rebound 24 fucking years ago. People meet on the rebound and have terrific relationships on the rebound. Rebound has a bad rep because most relationships fail. Most new relationships, people date, people fuck around, they hang out for a while, and they walk away. And if it was a rebound relationship, people go, oh, yeah, those rebound relationships, they never work out. And if they stay together forever, it it doesn't play into people's confirmation bias about a rebound relationship because they never broke up. So people don't go, oh, yeah, look at that rebound relationship. They broke up. That's what happens in those rebound relationships. If they stay together forever, people forget it was a rebound relationship. They don't talk about it as a rebound relationship. So this guy works for you. Stop telling yourself that this guy isn't allowed to work for you because you weren't single long enough after your previous relationship because there are experiences or adventures that you haven't had as a single person and instead tell yourself that there are experiences and adventures that you two can have together. And it is really important if you want a long-term committed relationship, monogamous or not monogamous, to have adventures together, to keep it fresh and new and exciting. At the beginning of a relationship, you're just a year in. The relationship itself is fresh and new and exciting. And we love that feeling of freshness, newness, and excitement. And when that drains out of the relationship, When just the two of you being together is not by itself going to feel fresh and new and exciting, it's on you as a couple to consciously engineer fresh and new and exciting. For a lot of gay couples, that means the occasional three-way. But if you guys are going to be monogamous, that just means being creative and inventive about when and where and how you're intimate and the risks you can take and the excitement that you can build into your monogamous commitment so that you can – have freshness, have newness, have excitement, have adventures together with the person, this awesome person, and he sounds terrific, that you've been with for a very long time. Because you haven't been with him a long time yet, but long time is coming. And you can have freshness, newness, excitement, and adventure with someone you've been with for a long time. And this guy sounds like someone you could be with for a long time. Stop looking at him and slapping the rebound label on him and convincing yourself that you should walk away from him for that reason. That is a bullshit reason to walk away from someone, someone who sounds perfect for you. So commit to this, commit to this guy for now, for another year. Don't think of it as committing to him for the rest of your fucking life for the next five or six decades. Think of it as the next year. And if you get to two years with this guy, commit to him for two more years. And if you get to four, you know what? Not a rebound relationship. Oh, and uh, you're 25, commit to but don't marry. Nice long engagement. If you two want to go the marriage route, you can get engaged and wait till you're 32 like a responsible adult. Hi, Dan. This is a relationship question, but mostly a parental question. My parents are landlords in Seattle. They worked hard my entire life so that they could give me and my cousins a stable life. I live in another city with a job I like and a boyfriend I love, but they're putting pressure on me to buy a house in Seattle. My boyfriend said we can move, but they treat him horribly and say things like, he doesn't know about your money, does he? And he doesn't know anyone there. Dan, 
I've been reading a lot about how fucked up the system is for the poor and about the housing shortage in Seattle. It makes me really sad to see the in- income inequality that's rising there. I feel so much internal turmoil between being a good daughter and being a good person and having a free life with my boyfriend doing our own interests. What should I do? So to sum up, the problem here is that your wealthy parents want you to move to Seattle and buy a house where you pretty much have to be wealthy to do that these days with your boyfriend whom they hate. And what should you do? You should do what you want to do. You should date the guy that you want to date. You should, of course, always listen to your parents, listen to your friends. If everybody in your life is saying, I think your boyfriend is bad news, maybe they're right. Maybe you should pause and think about what they've had to say. But if your parents are just unkind or irrational and have judged your boyfriend unfairly and can't see his good qualities because your parents are assholes, then you should continue to date your boyfriend. And if you don't want to live in Seattle, you don't have to live in Seattle because you are an adult and you get to make your own choices. And if my parents were controlling and felt that they could order me around about where I lived and what kind of house I bought and when and who I fucked, I wouldn't want to live in the same city with them. I would want to keep them at a geographic remove. So you're an adult. Live your adult life. Make your own choices without apology. Hi, Dan. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. I'm calling from a major metropolitan city on the West Coast. And I'm actually calling for my colleague who is sitting here across from me, and he lives with his ex-girlfriend. They dated for a couple of years, and they have lived together as friends for about six now. And his question is how and when should he roll that out to new people that he's dating? When should he tell new people that he lives with his ex? He says it's, it's been a problem in the past. I think it's some, I suggested it's something that should come up maybe around the third or fourth date, you know, as you're starting to get to know someone uh, and that it shouldn't be a problem, especially given how long uh, they've lived together as friends. Uh, I think the, the bigger issue is the, the two cats they share and his deep abiding love for those cats. So should he move out or should he just wait for someone for whom that will not be a big deal? I always think it's a good sign when someone is friends with their ex. I don't understand people who are made insecure or fearful or get judgy about dating someone who's friends with their ex. Most of the people that we date, we are going to wind up on their list of exes because every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to fail, quote unquote, until one doesn't. And you never know which one that is. And people have a lot more sort of tentative starter relationships than they have long-term epic relationships. So you're going to have a lot of exes in the world. And if somebody's exes like that person and have good relationships with that person, not intimate relationships, not romantically intense relationships that shove out potential new partners, but good friendly relationships with exes that they stay in contact with and have an, a sort of an appropriate level of quote unquote intimacy with. That's a good sign. Beware the person who hates all of their exes and is hated by all of their exes because they're probably going to hate you and you're going to hate them in the end because odds are that this relationship, like all new, brand new, nascent, trying it out relationships isn't going to work out. That said, I think there's a difference between friends with X and lives with X and is co-parenting a couple of beloved cats with X because that screams a kind of day-to-day intimacy, intense intimacy, expansive and 
all-encompassing and crowding out intimacy that a person that he might consider dating or might consider dating him would be threatened by, understandably. Like how much room and space is there in his life for someone new if he lives with his ex long-term, co-parents, beloved animals, cats with his ex and can't put an appropriate distance between himself and his ex to create room in his life emotionally, spatially for a, a new person to come in and be the person, the most important person in his life. Also, living with the ex kind of is one of those things that screams bad judgment because most people are going to have a problem with that. Some people who would have a problem with that, it exists on the continuum of having a problem with someone who's friendly with their ex in any way, in contact with their ex in any way, still following their ex on Facebook or Instagram. Some people who would have a problem with that would have a problem with any friendship or contact with the ex and they're the problem. But some people might have a problem with that just because what it says is I have bad judgment. And that's an underappreciated aspect of dating and mating. We are looking for partners who have good judgment. We don't want to live with people who are going to accidentally set the house on fire. We don't want to live with people who demonstrate day-to-day piss-poor judgment. And living with an ex is a manifestation perhaps in many people's eyes, even if they couldn't articulate it or, or, or name it. It's evidence of poor judgment because most people are going to have a problem with this. And you should be able to anticipate the fact that most people are going to have a problem with this. So the fact that you do it anyway might lead me to believe that you have this poor judgment and might make me think twice about dating you. Yeah, I don't think your single friend is doing himself any favors or making his path any easier by living with his ex. I sh- For sure there will be women out there who won't have a problem with this, but they're going to be rather few and far between. If he wants more options, he needs to get his own place. Take one of the cats. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis bi woman living on the East Coast. My boyfriend and I have been together about six months, but we're friends for about a year and a half before that, and we are in an open relationship. We have a set of rules that we came up with together, and I am very happy with him and our situation. So here's my problem. I've been seeing another guy, and I am crazy about him. He's fun. He's interesting. He's funny. The sex is great and exciting. He's a lot like me in that we both thrive off verbal affirmation and have high sex drive. So we sexed a lot and talk a lot and we're able to talk about everything. And I feel a deep connection with him. So it's, it's definitely not just sex. I've only actually seen him a couple of times, but we text all the time. We chat on the phone and we can talk for hours and it feels like no time at all. As per the rules of my open relationship, we're allowed to see each other only once a week which is, I think, why we're communicating so much. But another rule my boyfriend and I set is that we would cut it off with any additional partner once we get to the point of emotional attachment. But I have no idea where that point is. I'm thinking about this other guy all the time. I let him know when good or bad things happen. I imagine all the sex I want to have with him. And even though I know I'm not breaking any rules and I am allowed to see this guy, I feel like my heart is breaking a rule by how much I'm into him. My boyfriend is wonderful and such a good man and so good to me, but he's a lot quieter and more laid back. And We don't really text a lot when we're apart, and he's not a great sexter, which is something I really like and I'm really enjoying with this other guy. The sex with my boyfriend is still great, and I'm still attracted to him, but he needs less of it than I do, which is part of why we decided to be open. Versus with this other guy, we both seem to crave sex equally. So I'm wondering how much of this is just the excitement of being with someone new or if I should actually be with this other guy or someone like him who seems to be on a similar wavelength to me. 
this guy has made it clear that he's super into me and is totally fine with the situation as is, but he has also suggested that he would date me for real if he could. So I don't know, Dan, is what I'm doing okay? Should I address something in my primary relationship or should we keep going as is? Or should I be with this other guy? No matter what, I think I'd like to stay in an open relationship as I think monogamy is, is the right choice for me, but I'm not interested in a polyamorous relationship as I wouldn't want my partner to also have another primary partner. But right now, it definitely feels like I have two boyfriends. Help. So I thought it was really interesting, and I went back and listened to the top of your call again to make sure uh, of this, but you and your primary partner have only been together six months. Yes, but we've known each other about a year and a half before we started dating. So I've known him about two months, two years. Okay, but you only got romantically involved six months ago, and you determined after you got romantically involved that he, you know, your libidos aren't really in sync, that he doesn't give you the kind of sort of attention that you need on via text or uh, phone conversations or just sort of routine contact that you enjoy and appreciate and would like to have from a romantic partner. Is that right? Yeah. And the other guy does. Yeah. Yeah. We're just like on the same page in how we communicate and, and part of me you know, I knew this going into my, with my primary partner, what the deal was, but I was like, maybe I just don't need the constant validation. Like maybe this will be good for me and I can calm down a little bit and go slow a little bit more because I can be kind of neurotic and obsessive. And so mm-hmm. I, I knew what I was signing up for, um, and, and, and but impo- meeting this other person and it, who it, speaks my language in this way is like, whoa. <laughs> right. An important caveat. You might be getting that kind of attention from this other person right now because of the artificial limitations on the amount of time you can physically spend together. So he right. might be just pouring right. a lot of energy into texting with you that if you were in a relationship with him and saw him seven days a week, he wouldn't pour into texting with you because he would see you at the end of the day and you would spend all this FaceTime together. Uh, but jumping back, right. there's something that I, I just – Maybe it's me, but I'm just uncomfortable attaching like a a $40 label, like primary partner to someone you've only been seeing for six months. Because during that, you know, that six months, and I'm sorry, it starts when you begin dating and fucking. It doesn't start when you met a year and a half ago. During that six months, you know, early in a relationship, you're determining whether you're right for each other or not. And if you put a label like my primary partner and we are in an open relationship and it would violate the terms of this commitment I've made to someone prematurely, in my opinion, if I caught feelings for somebody else or continued to see somebody else uh, and violated the rules that we established kind of early in our relationship to lock in something that at six months, neither of us could really know for sure was going to be a partnership over the long term. You're still in the, dating and mating and sussing out an auditioning stage of a relationship when you're six months in. Yeah. My, my question for you would be if this other guy wasn't on the scene, if you weren't seeing this other guy once a week and texting with him constantly, would you be satisfied in your, the relationship that you're in now with what you're getting from that relationship now? I think I, I had been, and I think I didn't really know what I was missing. Mm hmm. So my boyfriend is very different than other people I've dated in the past. And so it was getting used to a new person, a new style. And yeah, I, I, I had, I had been, and then suddenly this new 
person comes along and I'm like, whoa, I maybe want that thing. <laughs> um, and then it's pointing out all of the things that my boyfriend doesn't do or hasn't been doing or hasn't been responding to. Mm-hmm. You know, the, um, the polyamorous folks have a, an expression. They have an acronym NRE for new relationship energy. And it's sort of a warning, like don't get carried away when you're in a new relationship. You're often likely to experience what's new relationship energy and it can make the new relationship feel so much better for you, like a better fit and and emotionally so much more satisfying and richer, Uh, not by dint of it actually being better for you or being more satisfying or richer, just because irrespective of the two of you, there's this NRE thing that is a factor. When you're with somebody new, it's fresh and new and exciting. Usually when people talk about NRE, they're comparing a relationship of many years or decades to a brand new relationship. But right now we're comparing two two brand new relationships. Yeah. (laughs) And one meets your needs and is sounds like a better fit for you and perhaps a better let's haul out that $40 word or, or, or phrase primary partner mm-hmm. for you over the long run than the guy you're with now. Yeah. You've sort of created an artificial, you know, in your head, you sort of committed to him in a way that at six months you shouldn't have committed to him emotionally because you're still in the dating, mating and auditioning stage. Totally. Totally. And we had been hooking up for a couple of months before we decided to be in a relationship. And that was, that was me. That was me being like, Hey, I want, to commit to you. I want to do this, Mm -hmm. this thing. And we decided to be open because that felt like the right move and what we both wanted, but he also hasn't been seeing anybody. Um, and so we kind of keep coming back to this, like, do you want to stay open? Do you want to be with me? Like what's going on? And I sometimes feel like my biggest neuroses in it is that I question whether or not he wants to be with me. Like, did I force his hand? in, in committing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this other guy is like, I want all of you <laughs> and it's overwhelming you and know, sometimes when you're intoxicating, in a, you know, I was in an open relationship many, many years ago and I'm, and I'm glad things worked out the way that they did. Cause I wouldn't be with the person I'm with now if they'd worked out differently, mm-hmm. but I was in a relationship for a few months with a guy and we were open and didn't have really matching libidos or sexual interests. And so we had an open relationship and I met a guy who I clicked with sexually in a huge way and emotionally huge way, but I wouldn't let myself uh, be with him. I wouldn't let myself date him or, or, you know, really run off with him because I didn't want to confirm the biases and stereotypes and prejudices that people have about open relationships, that they're always going to fail that, you know, you open the relationship and then it ends. And for fear of playing into that, stereotype about open relationships you know a lot of closed relationships end because people meet other people they'd rather be with so it's not just an open <laughs> right. relationship dynamic for fear of confirming that bias that stereotype i wouldn't date this guy who i probably should have <laughs> dated instead who was a better match for me but i was more yeah. committed to you know proving that an open relationship didn't have to fall apart the way everyone insisted every open relationship would fall apart and denied myself right. it was probably a better relationship. Now, as things all worked out in the end, I met Terry because I wasn't with that other guy anymore and I wasn't mm-hmm. with the other guy I could have been with when I was with the other guy and met Terry. So I'm glad it all worked out the way that it did. But that was a road I didn't take because I was clinging because I was worried about being embarrassed about being one of those yeah. guys in an open relationship who meets somebody else and runs off with that person. And so I didn't let myself run off with the person right. I probably should have run off with because I didn't want to lose face. 
Because I didn't want my yeah, friends who didn't. That's kind of how I feel too. It's like I don't want it to fall apart when it has only been six months, and you know, for this to just be like a pattern. But I do think that non-monogamy is right for me. Like it feels this is the first time I've done this, and it feels really right for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if monogamy works for me. So you're young. Um, you know, it, yeah. if what happens if you enter into a non-monogamous committed relationship with this other guy, if you leave the guy you're with now, which is what I kind of think you should do to play my cards, lay mm-hmm. my cards on the table, <laughs> you need to pay close attention to how non-monogamy works in your new relationship. Because, you know, yeah. if you're in a non-monogamous relationship with your next boyfriend, with this other guy, and then you are fucking somebody else and the same pattern repeats itself, where you kind of get carried away about a new guy. Yeah. And you want to leave the guy you're with to be with that new guy, then you might have an NRE problem or that just might be right. the way your relationship and sex life works. Some people have mm-hmm. a lot of successful short-term relationships and that's an option. And pe- you know, people who yeah. are happier having a, a series or sequence of grand love affairs rather than one, you know, long slog multi-decade relationship are shamed and that that choice is stigmatized. But for some people, that's what works for them and that's what makes them happy. And so long as they don't make everybody else miserable in the process, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as they're upfront about who they are and how they work once they know themselves and know what they need and know how they operate, then that's good and fine. But you're not going to yeah. know who you are and how it works for you, what you need until you break up with the guy you're with now and run off with the guy that you're only allowed to see one day a week. Yeah. It's just, he's such a good, I'm dealing with like two really excellent human beings and like my boyfriend hasn't done anything to warrant me breaking up with him, you know? And I know that doesn't, I don't need a, a reason necessarily, but you know what? Not the right guy for you is a reason to break up with somebody. Is a reason. Somebody doesn't have to be a, a monster, abusive, uh, criminally neglectful, you know, people have it in their heads. You're only allowed to break up with somebody if they're if they're an asshole, if they've committed some sort yeah. of relationship crime, and you are allowed to break up with someone because they're not a good fit. They're a good person, and you like them. You even love them, but they're not. Yeah. They're not the partner that you need, and that can be sad. It's easier to break up with somebody when you have a causes belly, when they've done something terrible, and you can just say, "Yep, that's it. You shat the bed. I'm out of here." But sometimes you have to be like, right. you know. I I hope we're friends forever and I think you're a wonderful person, but, <laughs> but we're not right for each other. We're not right for each other. We tried. Yeah. Yeah. It's really scary. I'm like really scared. <laughs> it's a good problem to have two great guys to choose from. It's a shitty position to be in to, to know that you're probably going to have to hurt one of them. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Sure too. Bye. Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. My wife and I are in our early 40s, and we've been together for 20 years. We have two wonderful little kids, ages 6 and 10, and despite that, we've had a great and exciting sex life. For the past 18 months or so, we've been in a wonderful polyamorous relationship with a single lady in her early 30s. She has a child the same age as our kids. Everything has been awesome, Our relationships have gotten better, more sexual, more loving, more exciting since we opened up our hearts and bodies to our new partner. We've gone on a vacation together and our partner and her child have stayed at our house for a few days at a time. Both my girlfriend and my wife are bisexual and we all get to play together. It's an awesome situation. We've joked a few times about getting a huge house somewhere and really merging our families. 
this is a big step and I'm excited and we're all excited but intimidated at the prospect. I guess this is a lot like a normal couple committing to move in with each other, but it is complicated by the polyamory. What do we tell the kids? What do we tell our parents? How about the financial logistics of blending things? Will this change the relationship in a bad way? How about simple living arrangements? Do we buy a duplex? A huge house? Two houses next door to each other? My girlfriend's kid is a cool little person who gets along great with my kids, and I'd totally love to be his parent. I love my wife, and the 20 years we've been together have been amazing. I love my girlfriend, too, and want to share adventures with her and my wife for the long term. We want to take our relationship to the next level, but we really don't want to jinx a great thing by trying to make it better. We would all love any advice you might share. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Cunning Minx, creator and host of the Poly Weekly Podcast, which is now up to over. They have surpassed. They've hit the 500 episode mark. How are you doing, Cunning Minx? I am doing great. How are you doing, Dan? Good. I always forget. Am I to call you Cunning or call you Minx? Which do you prefer? You call me Minx. All right, Minx. So poly relationship, couple in their 40s, couple of kids, girlfriend, kid roughly the same age, thinking about merging households. There's a lot at play here. What do you tell parents? What do you tell the kids? What about finances? What I really wanted to ask you first, though, about was things are great right now as they are. What's the kind of mm-hmm. generally accepted rule of thumb in polyamory? When things are great as they are, do you leave them as they are? Or do you take it, quote unquote, like the guy says, to the next level and risk changing things and perhaps things getting less great? If things are, if everything's working as is, why not leave it as is? Well, as with almost everything having to do with polyamory, I find that the rule of thumb is pretty much the same thing as it is with monogamy or any other relationship. Right. So why do two monogamous people move in together? Why do you decide to do that? If you want to share a life, if you want to share a household, if everybody wants to do that and that's the kind of life that they want, then great. You start talking about doing it. Mm -hmm. I, however, know plenty of poly people that identify as solo poly or uh, for any one of a number of reasons, love people, long term committed, loving relationships. They just don't ever want to share a house. You know, they they may not want to share a house, finances, or kids. So the so the answer to that is well, if the people involved want to combine lives and finances and mortgages and childcare, then go too. There's plenty of people who've had a lot of success with that. So mm-hmm. if they want to, give it a go. One thing that I bumped on when I was listening to the call bumped on is kind of Hollywood lingo. Something I noticed <laughs> that gave me pause or made me think was he's talking all through the call, the caller, about what he wants, mm-hmm. but he doesn't say what the wife wants or the girlfriend mm-hmm. wants. I, I assume they're all on the same page, but I would challenge the caller to make sure everyone's on the same page and everyone wants what he wants. And I'm curious as to whether this is a discussion that the caller has had with his wife and with his girlfriend. Hopefully so. But if yeah. not, caller, you need to have that conversation with your wife. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was the kids issue. You know, I, I got this when Terry and I were <laughs> adopting. People ask, you know, silly people, sometimes relatives, you know, are you going to, you know, how are you going to tell your son that you're gay? <laughs> and it's like, well, he's kind of <laughs> always going to know. Because he's an infant and we're adopting him and we're a gay couple. We're, you know, we're really probably not going to have to have the coming out conversation with him. Um, it's just going to be, you know, the water he swims in. That's going to be his family. 
But if your kids have perceived you and your partner to be monogamous because you've kind of performed social monogamy in front of your children and you're actually polyamorous uh-huh. and you want to have you know, your polyamorous relationship acknowledged, you want your polyamorous partner to be included and recognized as a member of the family, how do you uh-huh. come out to your 7- and 10-year-old kids about being poly? Well, the first thing I should, I should put up front, I've had many people on the show talking about kids and, uh, my poly partner and his wife have, uh, a kid that is now grown. Um, I myself do not have kids. So little, just a note there, full disclosure. Um, but the thing is, first of all, kids already know way more than you think they do. So it's a matter of how honest you decide to be with them and how you decide to frame things. Mm -hmm. If you are hiding something from them, and you're uncomfortable with your polyamory, then they're going to pick up on that and they're going to think there's something wrong with it or that there's something shameful or something that you need to hide. I still remember when I was dating my first poly partner and he had kids that were preteen, like, you know, 11, 12, 13, something like that. And when we had been dating for a significant period of time, realized that this was going to be a, a longer term, more substantial relationship. And he did decide to actually talk to his kids about it. And said, you know, I'm polyamorous. Can you figure out what that means? Knowing Greek and Latin roots, they were really smart, figured it out. And he said, and I have a partner. Can you guess who it is? And they thought about it and thought about it. And they're like, oh, oh, of course, it's Minx. She's over here all the time. She's always hanging out with you. Mm-hmm. You know, she stays overnight. And, um, and they already knew. They just hadn't quite put those dots together exactly. So it's really on how you present it to the kids. And I'll also throw in here that having more parents around to take care of kids is almost never a bad thing. Having more parents to cook and do laundry and pick kids up at school generally is great. And I haven't heard any negative feedback from any kids who grew up in poly households. Okay. Here's something that would be a fear for me. Like kids can handle the truth about parents. And I think kids can handle the truth about poly parents and it's better to have the truth then have suspicions or worries. You know, a kid may come into the house over here, dad having sex with someone when they know mom is not home and then, you know, leap to the not irrational conclusion that dad is cheating on mom and then be burdened by that secret. But kids can handle the truth. You can tell them the truth. But I, uh-huh. do, do poly parents have to ask themselves whether that truth is going to be a burden for their kids depending on where you are at, where you live, what part of the country you live in, whether you live in a place or have an extended family that's supportive of your poly relationship or not supportive of poly relationship. When you come out to your kids about being poly, there's got to be a difference between coming out to them and coming out as poly or yanking your kids into the poly closet with you. Because there are exactly. people in circumstances where they can't be publicly out about being poly because their families would disapprove or they would literally lose their jobs. People who are poly and open about it have been fired. There are no workplace protections for poly people. And so if you're in a place where telling your kids means swearing them to secrecy, is it better not to tell your kids? Is it better to wait? In the way that's usually presented when I've asked parents of uh, poly parents of children that question what they generally present that has a relative level of success is, you know, this is a thing that we are, and this is how we have our relationships, and it's okay, and we love each other, and ask us any questions you want, and we'll always be open with you. And this is something that is private, that there's nothing to be ashamed of, but other mommies and daddies and other people may not understand. So, you know, and they acknowledge that, look, you may get a little teasing about this. Let us know if you do, and we'll help you through that. 
Um, but it's something that they they do acknowledge that, you know, this is different from what other people do and it's totally okay and it's totally good and it works for us, but other people do something that work, looks more like monogamy and that's totally okay and it works for them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll even help arm the kids with, you know, here's some things that we think you're going to hear and here's some things you can say in response. But it's more of, it's like everything else with kids, it's, it's an ongoing dialogue they may not ever run into anything. The fears may be completely unfounded. They sometimes are. I, mm. I think people really worry a lot more about kids adapting. I think, frankly, it's the grownups who have a harder time yeah, adapting. And that, that exactly <laughs> parallels my experience as a gay parent. Like a lot of people were really yeah. kind of trolling, concern trolling us about, you know, what it would be like for him to have oh, gay yeah, parents. Whatever. And, and our son encountered actually, particularly in Seattle, very little grief and very little homophobia and very few people getting in his face about uh, his family much less than the concerned trolls were concerned about in my experience. And, and hopefully the same is the case yeah. for poly parents. And I recognize that I literally just concerned trolled poly parents about being out about being poly. Um, <laughs> circling back to the caller's big questions, like should they tell parents? What about merging finances? What about telling kids? And the answer is there are people out there who've done it, told parents, merge finances, come out to their kids, come out to their communities. And it's all gone really well. And there are people who've done that and it's all gone not so great and individual results may vary and good luck, right? Because there's nothing you can say or I can say that can assure him that it's all going to go perfectly. Yeah, there's there's no relationship guarantees. There is nothing that's going to guarantee 100% success in your relationship. But as with in any other relationship, the key is really communication. Just It's not one conversation about moving in and sharing finances. It's multiple conversations over multiple months. And in my case, I actually just moved in with uh, my partner and my metamor six months ago. We talked about it for a good three years wow. <laughs> before I moved in. And it's really important for each person to say what it is that they need in order to be happy. I, for example, knew that I needed my own space. I'm like, I love you. I need my own bedroom and I need my own bathroom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we actually had to wait for the adult kid to uh, move out of the house before I could move in. And you may have other requirements. And it may be that in your first conversation, you think you have a requirement. And three months later, you revisit and you're like, no, actually, I don't need that or I've changed it. Just take the time to continue to have those conversations Everybody gets to say what they want. You may not always get it, but you say what you want. And then we negotiated everything. We negotiated the finances. We negotiated space. We negotiated what color to paint things. Um, and we've, we've kind of got it down to a shorthand at this point. In fact, we still get together once a month afterwards for like a check-in to just say, hey, what's going really well with our cohabitation? Is there anything that you're really happy about? Get a little positive reinforcement going. And then also bring up anything that might be an issue. I'm always really worried in those meetings that they're going to bring up something horrible and that's just so core to who I am and I can't change it and it's going to be really terrible and awful. That never happens. Uh, it's, it's, if anything negative is brought up at all, it's fairly minor. And, uh, and it's like, okay, I'll work on that. Can we keep you around for one more question? Yeah. I think this one is going to piss you off. Here we go. Hi, Dan. I am a mostly straight 35-year-old female in Portland, Oregon. And I've been, after a long period of being single, uh, freshly dating a guy for the last like three months. About a month into it, we both recognized we weren't ready for a fully monogamous relationship. um, And we agreed to tentatively open the relationship he immediately took advantage of that, even though I expressed some concerns regarding it. But I decided to proceed under the understanding that, one, he would not be breaking any commitments with me in order to spend time with other people. 
and two, that uh, economy usage was absolutely mandatory. It's It's been about six weeks now, and uh, several times the last-minute cancellation because he wants to continue spending time with another person has occurred. After a, a further issue last week over Steak and Blowjob Day where I was ditched, and then kind of drug into this semi-awkward hang out with the other partner thing and then left at my house while they went home together. We hung out after a few days because he expressed the need to spend some quality time with me. Uh, during that quality time, we both got inebriated, and I asked him again, after having done the night before, if he was actually being faithful to his statement that he was going to be protected with this other person. He'd mentioned that there'd been a slip-up, and I kind of pressed him on that, and I was like, hey, like, you know, this is, sounds like you're lying. Like, are you? And he said, yes, at which point I informed him that we were done. I couldn't, I couldn't do this. There, were, there was too many grave concerns. He, he asked me to please wait for a week, and then he would get back to me um, with how he might be able to address uh, this, this broken trust and how we might be able to move forward. It's, it's been a week now. And I'm just wondering, is there is there a reasonable way for me to move forward with this? Because I've, I've confirmed with the other partner that, yes, they've been having unprotected sex. And he's expressed that, you know, this is a really common thing with with poly relationships. It's a really common boundary, that it's a common thing to break up. It's a common thing for people to lie about it. And but we're both just kind of wondering, is there a way for this to reasonably move forward? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to tell me to DTMFA and he just wants to hear it from someone else or or some kind of way that this can get resolved without us having to completely sever what is otherwise a, a, a pretty good possible long-term relationship. So, Minx, is it common for people in successful poly R's to lie to each other about safety, to lie to each <laughs> other about using condoms, to not use condoms after they promised to use condoms, to ditch their primary quote-unquote partner. I don't think anyone's a primary partner at three months, but whatever. To ditch you for this other person they're seeing and lie about it. Is that how good poly relationships function? You know, that just doesn't sound like how a good relationship of any kind functions. Um, you know, let me start out by saying, you know how I feel about rules. If you show me a rule that you impose on somebody else, then I can show you exactly why you're going to break up. But I'm actually less concerned about uh, wait, 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 stop. We have to stop there. Are you arguing for no rules should be imposed? Um, I find that bound, personal boundaries work better than rules. So if I place a rule on you to try to control your behavior, mm-hmm. well, first, it just never works. Like my placing rule on you in order to control another human being's behavior just never ends up working the way you think it will. But if your boundary Instead, is, I can't be with you if you're having unsafe sex with others, doesn't that just create the rule, but you're calling it a boundary instead of a rule, using a three-syllable word instead of one-syllable word? <laughs> so safer sex goes in a different category. So that's why I kind of wanted to break this up into the the first thing, the rule about not breaking dates, I kind of shrug. And I'm like, you know what? You say don't break a date. You're together 20 years, they're going to break a date at some point. You know, whatever. One month, 20 years. It's more concern. I, I would feel better if she put in a personal boundary saying, hey, you know, I want to be able to see you, you know, whenever possible, or I want to feel needed and important. And here's how, here are the things that contribute to my feeling needed and important. So general things, um, as opposed to you can or cannot do this other thing. However, safer sex really fits into a different category. Safer sex is something that actually affects my personal 
physical sexual health. And a, a condom slip up in that area. Now, I understand that these things happen. That being said, never met somebody yet that didn't have some sort of oops incident. However, he chose to lie about it. And he chose not to tell the truth until he was drunk. Mm-hmm. Right. In the dark days of the AIDS crisis, we called something negotiated safety, which is two people, two guys in a relationship would stop using condoms together on the condition that if one of them slipped up, had sex with somebody else and it was unsafe, they would immediately disclose that. So they and the couple could go back to using condoms until they tested again to make sure that the slip up didn't result in an HIV infection. And there had to be that ironclad promise to disclose the slip up, also not to break up over the disclosure because a threat to break up over disclosing a slip up would incentivize not disclosing and create a huge incentive for one person to put the other person at risk. So you had to like join hands and say, if there's a slip up, you will tell or I will tell. And we both promise that that's not going to end the relationship. And we will start using condoms again, get tested and soldier through this, power through this. Um, my problem my problem here is, yeah, he didn't disclose. He repeatedly didn't use condoms with this woman. And then when he did disclose, he's like, well, all poly people do that. Like, get the fuck away from this guy. Just for that reason alone, <laughs> his inability to take responsibility for his actions and choices and wanting to point a finger at the entire poly community and say, oh, no, no, no. This is what polyamory is. Dirtbaggery with a fancy Greek and Latin name. No. Yeah, I, I consider that a consent violation. I consider it if you... Uh, break a safer sex agreement and do not, as you say, if you disclose and say, okay, here's what we're going to do about it, you are undermining my ability to make decisions about my personal sexual health. And that is not okay. That is never okay if you don't disclose. So it was not the slip up, but the lying about it, concealing it for a a, a period of time when she might have been able to make uh, decisions about, you know, what she was going to do about getting tested, uh, her own sexual health. Um, and then, of course, brushing it off. Um, so my personal response to that would be, hell no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do not get to, you do not get to um, treat this consent violation in terms of sexual health as nothing and then lie about it. So, um, or claim it's a me, community norm. Uh, yeah. For me, no. However, I do understand that you know, other people have different uh, standards than me. And so my question for her is, how magic is his dick? So <laughs> if, if his dick is really, really magic and you just want it so much that you're willing to overlook the fact that he lied about this, which also, by the way, tells you that when there's something in his behavior that he's embarrassed about, his natural response is to lie. And the only way you're going to get it out of him is if you get him drunk again. So this is not something, this is not a dynamic that, that I would be comfortable with. But if his dick is really, really magic and you just can't live without it, then, and you really think it's worth it to take the time to rebuild trust, then you got to sit him down and ex- express to him how important this is. You need to probably hear some words of apology from him. And then you need to determine what it is that it would take for you to trust him again. I personally can't think of anything that would lead me to trust him again. Yeah, me me either. I'm a firm believer in the sisterhood of the traveling magic dick. But (laughs) this is is over for me. Like three months in, one month in, you open it up and you have two very simple, easily honored rules that he repeatedly violates – that he has to get drunk to disclose, put your health at risk, and then not, you know, that that term gaslighting gets thrown around way too often, but in a minor way, 
gaslit you a little bit about what poly community is like and poly community standards are like and expectations are like and you're unfamiliar with polyamory because it's the first time you've attempted it and he's just a fucking lying, selfish, dickful thinking asshole and you should get the fuck rid of him and you've only invested three months. It's not like you've been married to this guy for 20 years and you opened it up and your first forays into polyamory were clumsy, which sometimes happens. And looking back over the 20 year investment yeah. of time and a history together and a family, yeah, maybe you can work through this shit. But at three months, someone's treating you like this? No dick is that magic. <laughs> you have to have the Dumbledore of dicks for you to put up with this. And yeah, it does not. It would have to. I, you know, that being said, I do have friends that have partners with apparently magic dicks because they put up with a lot of shit. So, um, yeah, if that many consent and trust violations that early in the relationship, and as you say, Dan, he's not taking personal responsibility. He's not owning that he made mistakes. He's not accepting the value of the consequences it had for her and instead trying to brush it off, but somehow wants to get back together. So, you know, if you really want to get back together with him and his magic dick, then basically what you need to do is find a series of actual behaviors that he can exhibit And when he completes those behaviors, then you will feel more trust for him. And it can't be something general. It needs to be things that he can actually do that you can benchmark. I can't think of what those would be, but if you can, go ahead. Cunning Minks, (laughs) creator and host of the Poly Weekly Podcast. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure as always. Hello, Dan and the tech savvy youth. For two and a half years, I was in an emotionally abusive relationship. We both made mistakes, but he used mine to justify his constant criticism, lies, and jealousy. Why I stayed is more complicated than I want to describe, but essentially, when it was good, it was amazing. And when it was bad, it was so awful. We broke up and got back together a total of seven times, the last time being three months ago. I saw something on his phone, and in my mind, a flip just switched. The previous night, we'd had a conversation about boundaries when it came to him talking to girls, and What I saw was exactly what I'd asked him not to do, and even I couldn't justify his behavior anymore. The other times we had broken up, it was so difficult for me, and even though I knew it'd be more of the same, I couldn't help myself. This last time, I was fortunate enough to have that flip and not look back. Before he'd even left the house, I'd blocked him on every app that allows people to search you, even apps like Pandora and Venmo, because I genuinely did not want to know what he was doing at all. Days after we broke up, he left a note on my windshield, to which I didn't give a response. Shortly after, he sent me an email. I only wrote him back to say that, in a nutshell, I didn't want him to attempt to contact me anymore. I didn't hear from him until I'd received a small gift from him in the mail. A week later, I saw him at a friend's party. He was acting like the charming guy I'd loved before, and we spent most of the night talking. But despite his charm, I hadn't forgotten the side of himself he saved just for me. It seemed obvious he still had feelings then, but I knew this for certain when I realized my TV was still logged into his YouTube account. He had searched at least 50 different versions of how to get your ex back. Since that discovery, he's reached out via text to make conversation, and I carried on for a few texts, but and I intentionally didn't respond when he got flirty. Dan, I don't want him back, but he wants me and he's playing the long game. How do I essentially break up with him again? I don't know if I have led him on by responding to his messages or because I enjoyed talking with him at the party. And part of me thinks that I've already broken up with him and that was sign enough. And if that's true, how should I respond when he makes contact or approaches me at events? Am I responding from a place of submission by even responding to his text or by giving thought as to how to politely get him to stop? And now that I've responded positively to his advances, should I let him know that I won't be responding to his messages anymore? 
There is literally no reason for him to contact me, so I want it to stop completely. I don't appreciate randomly being reminded of him or feeling like he's holding on and waiting for me to come around. Those videos encouraged him to believe getting back together is possible for any situation. There are literally videos he watched about how to get a girl back when she's blocked you on everything and how to get a girl back when she wants nothing to do with you and how to get a girl back when she's being stubborn. I'm not sure how to effectively discourage him when there are hundreds of videos suggesting my rejection of him is only an obstacle in the path of our inevitable reunion. What would you say to someone watching these videos? Yeah, so I think it's always a good sign when people are friends and friendly with their exes, but this is a different case. First of all, he's trying to worm his way back into your good graces because he would like to still be in a relationship with you. He would like to resume being in a relationship with you, a relationship that has ended, what, seven or eight times now due to his bad behavior? I'm not exactly sure what it is he did. Texting with other girls, flirting with other girls, something that is a deal breaker for you again and again and again. He did that and it was over. So yeah, while I think it's generally a good policy when people are friendly with their exes, when you're being friendly with an ex who's trying to get back into your pants, you're inviting attention that you don't want. You're also allowing that person to live in false hope. And that can cause them to double and redouble their efforts to re-ingratiate themselves with you. And that can be very frustrating. So I think that what you do in a case like this is err on the side of not being friendly or friends with your ex because your ex has an ulterior motive and your ex has hopes that are false and any interaction that you have with him is going to just encourage him to keep at it. And you don't want him coming at you. You're the it that he's keeping at. You want it to stop. So you text him the next time he texts you and say, you know what? I don't want to chit-chat with you via text. I'm going to block you on my phone now like I've blocked you everywhere else because I just don't think it's good for either of us to be in even casual contact. You need to move on. I am not going to be your girlfriend in the future or ever again, and that's that. I'm blocking you. I'm going to date other people. You date other people. I wish you well, period, the end, and then never respond to him again. Be civil and polite, of course, when you see him at a party, if your social circles occasionally merge and you're thrown together in the same room, you can be polite. You can engage. Don't spend all fucking night in a corner at the party talking to him. You can be polite. You can be civil. But you can clearly communicate, even in those interactions, that you have no interest in engaging with him, much less dating him ever again. Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm a 23-year-old male in the Pacific Northwest with kind of an interesting situation I'd like to get your take on. So I moved here from across the country. I'm in a committed relationship, and we still both use Tinder as a way to meet people and make new connections. I'm straight, but swipe to to meet both males and females. Um, A few weeks ago, I happened upon a guy's profile and noticed he went to the same university as me when I lived in New England. We had a similar circle of friends based on our Tinder connections, so I happily swipe right, looking forward to meeting another East Coaster in the Pacific Northwest. Based on his profile, I was under the impression he was gay, but this didn't at all deter me from making a potential new friend in a big city. In my profile, I said I have a girlfriend, and I even communicated this to him over text. Uh, We got drinks together one night, uh, during which time I told him I wasn't gay, and it did little to affect our night or the conversation. We had a really good time and look forward to meeting up again for drinks or a run in the future. A few days after our hangout, though, an old ex-girlfriend of mine that I rarely speak with contacted me out of the blue, 
saying she had heard through a mutual friend of myself and this guy that I had gone out with him. She then went on to question whether or not I was gay. She made it a point to emphasize her concern over the matter, saying that she had been hurt hearing that news, and then stated that if I was in fact gay, she'd have a lot to process. At first, I found all this funny when she said it, as it was a huge misinterpretation on her part. But the more I thought about the situation, the more I became frustrated with the notion that she was contacting me simply to see if I was gay, which would be none of her business, as she herself even pointed out in her opening message to me. She then went on to make this about her emotions and reactions to hearing that news. Had I in fact been gay, this would have been both hurtful and insulting to have a past lover assume my sexuality had any real effect on her life years after we've been apart. Additionally, I thought it was immoral of her to reach out simply to tell me how she feels about it and how she needs to cope rather than to be happy or accepting should that have been the case. I went on to tell her that uh, the way she went about this was wrong and that my sexuality, regardless of whether or not I was gay, did not give her the right to message me based on her insecurities. Uh, I'd love to hear your opinion on this matter. Thanks. There are girls out there and I hear from them every once in a while. Actually, I think at this point I've heard from every single one of them who faced this problem. There are girls out there who have dated a string of guys who came out after they were together. There are girls out there who have six or seven or eight ex-boyfriends who are all homos now and were homos then, just not out. And so what she did was wrong. But before I can you know, send her to you shouldn't have done that wrong text prison, I'd want to interrogate her about why this news about you going on a quote-unquote friendship Tinder date with someone was so potentially traumatizing to her that she had to reach out in this way. And if she's had seven or eight boyfriends in a row who later came out as gay, it doesn't make what she did okay, but it certainly puts it in a context where you can understand why someone who has this particular insecurity might have the particular meltdown that she did via text with you. Doesn't mean she shouldn't be punished for it. Doesn't mean she shouldn't be sent to text prison for a couple of days, do some community service, say a few Hail Marys. But if that was the case, I can certainly understand why she might have that meltdown because a lot of girls have that meltdown in my email inbox every day. So in summation, Your Honor, she did something shitty. She asked you questions that she had no right to ask you. Sounds like you did a good job of shutting it down. And that's the end of it. And hopefully you won't hear from her ever again. And hopefully the guy that you hung out with because you went to the same college together and you're in a new place together and it was a Tinder friendship date isn't a gossip and isn't out there claiming that you might secretly be gay because you went on a Tinder friendship date with him at all. Hopefully that isn't how this got to her because you might need to shut him down too if that's the case. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the mother who called about asking if it was weird to buy lube for her 12-year-old and just wanted to let her know that, yeah, it's kind of weird, but it also works. Um, I have a 17-year-old son and we had many lubricating substances go missing from around our house. And the clincher was when he stole my very expensive coconut oil and I found it. And so I went out and created a gift basket for him. That was a bucket with a Cosmo and some lube and some lotion and some coconut scented hand sanitizer. Cause I'm evil and some socks and some wipes and just the whole bucket of stuff with a card that had a picture of a dog farting rainbows on the front that said, I hope your day is better than a dog farting rainbows. And I put it on his bed and 
he was a little embarrassed and he blushed, but he also thought it was hilarious. And it was my way of telling him, like, have at it, go for it, don't steal my shit. And we still have little uh, references to it and laugh about it now. So not shaming, not strange, turned out really well. Hi, Dan. I'm just calling in response to the lady in the last uh, podcast that said she doesn't filter her cursing when she's around her children. I just wanted to add that children don't have the social IQ to know when is appropriate to curse and when isn't appropriate to curse. This was a point of contention between my sister-in-law and I for a few years until her son at four decided to tell his daycare uh, provider to fuck off after making him mad and he got kicked out of the only daycare in town or when they were in line at the grocery store and the lady in front of him uh, their card declined and he proceeded to tell her she was a broke ass bitch so yeah I would filter cursing around young children until they're old enough to surmise for themselves when it's appropriate and when it's not Hey, uh, I am calling for the girl who recently gained a lot of weight and is going on dating apps. So I am 22. I weigh about 275 pounds. I have been on dating apps with and without my boyfriend as recently as a couple months ago. And let me tell you this, there are lots and lots and lots of people who are into that without being fetishizy about it. And also people aren't aren't that cruel. I know it might be scary. Dan made it sound like there were gonna be a lot of people. That's not necessarily the case. So I wish you the best of luck. I just wanna give you my experience. It's gonna be okay. Although a, a thick skin is good every once in a while. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. You know what? We need to impeach this motherfucker. ITMFA. I am wearing an ITMFA t-shirt right now. You can get yours at ITMFA.org along with impeach the motherfucker already. Buttons and hats and coffee cups. And speaking of swag, we've got Savage Lovecast t-shirts, mugs, books at savagelovecast.com slash shop. And be sure to listen to Blabbermouth every week, the Strangers Weekly Political Podcast hosted by Eli Sanders. If you like my political rants at the top of the show, you will love Blabbermouth, which you can find where you find the rest of your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Listen to Cunning Minx on the Polly Weekly Podcast and follow her on Twitter at the Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 